We are all glory lovers. And it begins at the earliest stages of our lives when we are children. We want to stand out. And we want to feel, feel significant. And when I was growing up, we expressed it this way. We want to be like Mike. Um, we used to put posters of our superstars on our bedroom walls. It is a desired reality of everyone. And if necessary, if we can't achieve it in reality, we'll get it in virtual reality. Watch this most recent commercial on television. I want to be quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys. Not later. Now. I want to own the pocket, make the plays, drop dimes to my receivers. I want to feel 80,000 fans on my shoulders as I carry them to victory. You know, nothing major. He started out by saying, I want to be the quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys. He wanted to carry 80,000 fans on his shoulders to victory. See, that's what he wants. And for him, in our day, he says, nothing much. That's not really much. You know why? Because for everyone today, it's pretty normal. It's ordinary. And that's what the quest for glory is. It's nothing major because it is what we all seek. Um, we want to score the last-minute touchdown on the final drive of the Super Bowl. Uh, we want to have the walk-off home run in the bottom of the ninth in the World Series. Um, we want to have everyone look at us and say, wow, look what he or she did. See, it's what we all want. And if sports is not your thing, then there's no worries because there's multiple ways to express our love for glory. And they're not all bad. Um, we do it when we're growing up as we want to be the lead in the school play. Uh, we want to achieve the highest GPA so that we can get scholarships, so we can get awards. Uh, we want to be beautiful, like the people on the magazines. We want to be muscular. We want to be popular. And that's just when we're kids. But, you know, as you grow up and to be an adult, it only gets more sophisticated. Well, at least sometimes. Um, I've seen, have you not? Um, perhaps you're one of them. Have you seen adults at their children's programs at school? Have you? They, they, their kids are first, second graders, and they come in and walk in, and they're screaming, you think you're at a football game. Their kids have one singular little line in the program, and they get a standing ovation. Because as we grow up, if we are no kids, we're not kids any longer, we'll get the glory through our children, right? The youngest levels of competition. You go to the rec leagues, the city leagues in basketball, and there's third graders. You'd think this was the NBA Finals that their kids were headed to that NBA. But for all of us, it's social status, career advancement, wealth, degrees, the resume that we're making. They're all signs. They're all expressions that we have in our American culture of making it in life. Still not you? Well, there are another, other kind of people and these are the people who seize glory by avoiding humiliation. They try to stay out of the limelight because they really don't care about winning. They just don't want to come in last. You see, they don't want the, fa the fa fans, the 80,000 fans on, on their shoulders, feeling it on their shoulder, carrying it. They don't want any of that. They don't want the 80,000 fans 
jeering and booing at them because they messed it up for everybody on the team. It's like the age-old playground scenario when all the kids get together to play ball and they're going to choose two teams. See, this person doesn't want to be the guy who everybody looks to to be the captain to choose sides. They just don't want to be the last person who's standing alone that nobody wanted on their team. See, whether it's the passion for praise or approval, whether it's the avoidance of humiliation, all of it are things that we use to get glory out of them. But you know as well as I do, glory lovers, they're nothing new. Listen to the line of the classic Beowulf. Let whoever can win glory before death. Kings in ancient times, they got glory by going out to battle. In Tolkien's book, The Lord of the Rings, King Theoden was battling against the orcs in the Battle of Helm's Deep, and he was greatly outnumbered. And here's what he does to challenge his people to fight to the death. Now has the hour come. Riders of the mark, sons of Earl. He says, foes and fires are before you and your homes are behind you. Yet you fight on an alien field, he says, that the glory you reap there shall be yours forever. He says, yeah, we're going to all die, but we're going to get glory from it. It was worth the cost, he says. See, we even preserve this idea of glory loving and some of the things and some of the figures of speech that we preserve to this day. Have you ever said, I was so embarrassed I wanted to die? See, because we understand what it means to have people look at us and accept us and like us and the approval. We're all glory lovers. But did you notice in the text, if you look at verse 42 and 43, did you see it? The rebuke of John as he writes his gospel to the religious officials is not that they are glory lovers. He doesn't say or condemn us for being glory lovers, but what he condemns is the problem that we have. And the problem is that we love the inferior glory that comes from man instead of the superior glory that comes from God. That is our problem. And only a love, a supreme love in the affections of our heart for the glory of God is a cure for a love of the glory of man. And so the question today in our text and to your life is this. Who do you look to for glory and honor and approval? Listen, most. And why do you do it? So let's take a few moments this morning and the time we have left and unpack. Can we, the both sides of this glory-loving motif. The first one is, look at it together, loving the glory that comes from man. Glory is a word in the Hebrew and Greek. In Hebrew, it is the word kabod. It means weight. It literally means weight. It means heavy. And it can refer to the size and the significance of a person or an object. John's gospel is filled with this word 36 times in its various forms all throughout the 21 chapters of John's gospel. Seven times in our chapter, this word is used. And it means this. The point in this passage is not girth, but greatness. Being consequential. Having your life have real value. Ed Welch is a biblical counselor, and he wrote a book, and if you haven't, you ought to read it. The title is When People Are Big and God is Small. And he says in there, and I quote, the glory of man comes down to this. We need something from people. 
We need approval. We need affirmation. We need from them the significance and the value that we need to find for our lives. So why? I should say when. When we love the approval of men more than the approval of God, there is a biblical term for it, and it is called idolatry. See, when we end up substituting what people think of us to be more valuable, more weighty, more influential in our lives than what God thinks of us, we have a problem. When that happens, Ed Welch would say, people become big and God becomes small. God is shrunken in our life. Shrink down is what we do to him. When we value what people think and what they say of us and if they like us and we're approved by them more than God himself. And can I tell you, the idol of this, the idol of the glory of man can absolutely ruin your life if you're not careful. It can control us like no other idol that we face. It can tell you how to think. It can tell you how to feel, act. It can tell you what to wear and when to wear it. It can even tell you what you will and won't laugh about. See, the idol of human glory love can move us, and you can perhaps think of times in your life, to say things and do things that you would never have said or done at any other time. I read a statistic this week that said a large percentage of people who begin to smoke cigarettes or drink alcohol when they are young do so not because they like the feeling or the taste, but because everyone else around them is doing it. People of all ages will violate their own moral beliefs and standards. They will compromise their sexuality knowing it is against what they believe in order to appease and affirm and get the approval of a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Students of all ages will blatantly cheat on their homework, exams. They will plagiarize their papers when they turn them in. Not just to get better grades, although that's true, but that's just a means to an end. It's so they want to fit in and the people around them that are pursuing a certain GPA because this is the image that they want people to see them as. C.S. Lewis wrote an essay about this very concept and it's called The Inner Ring. In it, he has a little phrase called the phenomena of the inner ring. And in it, he says this, We want desperately to always be on the inside and never on the outside. And he says there are hundreds of rings in life. Maybe you've experienced some. I think of maybe the most common one is the school ring. We want to be on the inside at school. We used to say when I was growing up, there are four kinds of people, four groups at school. Brains, bronze, beauties, and bullies. And everybody fit into one of those categories, roughly. And so whatever of those categories, whatever group or circle that you ran in, see, you wanted to make sure that they all liked you and approved of the things that you were saying and you were doing. And that's not just something that takes place at school, is it? No, it takes place in the office. We call it office politics, getting close to the boss, making sure that you're next in line for the promotion, and you got to say this, and you got to go here, and you got to have this, and you have to have this at the dinner, and you have to drink, and you have to talk, and you have to. It's the work ring. And there are friendship rings, 
And there are family rings that oftentimes, if you're not careful, look like a soap opera and all the drama that takes place. C.S. Lewis said, but what you find once you get on the inside of the ring is that there's another level and there's more inner rings and more inner rings. It's like skin on an onion. It just keeps deeper and deeper. And the more inside you think you are, there's more rings to go, he says. And we often, as a result of these rings, we give away things that we would never give away, relationships and so forth. And C.S. Lewis says one of the most dominant desires that people have is to get inside the ring, and to them to be outside is a terror in their hearts. His words. The text says in 1242, nevertheless. Do you see it in the word? Nevertheless, it's a contrast that John wants to point out because in the context, in verses 37 through 42, here's what he says that there are a lot of religious people that were not believing on Jesus. They had seen all the signs that he did, but they still didn't believe that he was the Christ. In contrast to that, nevertheless, he says there were others and quite a few who were religious officials and had authority and had position. See, there were a number of them, it says, and they believed on Jesus. They believed he was the Christ, but then it follows with this word, ready? But... It's ayah in the Greek. It is the strongest adversative. It's the, it's the most emphatic way that you can say a contrast. He says, but here's some believers, who, some people who are not believers, and they just don't outright believe in Jesus at all. But people in the same group, they did believe in Jesus. But there was something wrong. You know what it was? It says, because of fear of the Pharisees, they didn't confess it. They didn't say it outright. They didn't let it go public. See, because of fear. The Pharisees were the ring leaders. Can I say it that way? They were the leaders of the religious inner ring. And if you were an official in authority and you were rising up in your image and stature and status in the culture, see, you could not afford to offend the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, by and large, had nothing to do with Jesus and did not like him or believe in him. So if you wanted to go up in the echelons of power and a religious authority, you really couldn't risk it, could you? See, Pharisees were insiders, They were the very center of the religious ring. And to go public with your faith in Jesus, it was a risk. Why? Because once you're put out of the inner ring, there's very little chance that you would ever be put back in it. By saying that Jesus is the Messiah, Messiah would know that that would make them an outsider. So you know what chapter 12, verses 42 and 43 are? They are verbal pictures of the inner workings of these officials' hearts, and perhaps yours and mine. Because when you looked into their heart, here's how they made their decisions. They were fixated on the approval of people. In fact, the Bible says they loved it. They loved the glory that came from man. They loved it. It is what they preferred. It's what they wanted most. It's what they measured their actions by. See, it's what they did to stay in step with the inner ring of the first century religious people. Because if they were to confess Jesus, they couldn't because it meant jeopardizing their place in the inner ring. You say, wow, that's crazy. Why would they do that? Didn't they really know who he was? Let me tell you this, really. 
You and I aren't too much different in the 21st century, are we? Let me ask you, how many times have you remained silent at school or at your job when the conversation around the lunch table becomes religious or about morality and everyone's expressing their opinion and you say nothing? See, you're not going to risk it, so you are silent. How many times with your friends at work or the people that you hang around with have you used cuss words? And laugh at sensual and inappropriate jokes because everyone is laughing. And the reason is not because you think it's funny, but because you want to fit in. How many relationships have been damaged or severed? And I mean relationships with people who actually love you. Teenagers, your parents. People who you would have a relationship that would love you for a lifetime. And you have discarded it as if it was optional. And the reason is, is because the people in your inner ring would not approve of the authority of your parents or their beliefs or their standards, and so we discard them. However many times it has been in your life, it is equal to the number of times that Jesus has become weightless to you. He doesn't have any value, and we belittle his glory when we make those choices over and over and over again. You see, the glory that comes from men, John says in this text, is connected to fear. That is the reason why we make such horrific choices. See, it's behind the cussing, it's behind the joking, it's behind the silence, it's behind the shattered relationships. It's behind, you know what it is? It's fear. That's what drives us. Fear of being an outsider, fear of rejection, fear of damaging our image. Fear of what people think of us. Fear fear that people won't like me. And I've heard it said too many times. I won't get invited to the parties. I won't get asked out on a date. I won't get the promotion. Fear reigns in our hearts. And we are afraid that someone that we care about and their opinion that we deeply want, their appreciation, their affirmation, they'll withhold the love that we really want in our lives. And so we are afraid But that's just the outer level. That's the outer skin of the onion. Because the verse in verse 42 goes on to say a little bit more. Because of fear of the Jews, they didn't do it. But what was the purpose behind it? See, let me go to the inner ring. I mean, the inner ring behind our motives and our thoughts and our feelings. It says, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. That is the inner ring. When you peel them on back, this is what mattered the most to them. Back in John's Gospel, chapter 9 and verse 22, it tells the story of a man who had been born blind. Jesus comes by and he heals this man of his blindness. And of course, the Pharisees and religious leaders are angry at Jesus because he does it on the wrong day. And he claims to be able to forgive sins. And so they're finding, they're trying to get to the bottom of it and see what happened, what happened, what did Jesus say, what really took place. And so in John chapter 9, they come to his parents, the blind man's parents. And in John 9, 22, here's what it says. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. And what his parents says is, you better go ask him, don't ask us. He's an adult. Why would they say that about their own child? They wouldn't even stand up for their own son who now sees for the first time in his entire life and they still don't back him how in the world. Fear. 
It was already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Same thing. You know what for them? To stand up for Jesus and to stand up for their own son, hear this, it was too risky. Their own son. So they played the silent card because they weren't willing to give up the inner ring that they found as most precious. For them, the inner ring meant losing face, losing finances, and losing friends. And losing all of that was way too expensive in order to actually love what their own son and Jesus thought and said. How is that possible, Pastor Walker? Because they privatized their faith. Oh, they knew what Jesus did and they saw what Jesus did, but they weren't going to confess it because if anyone who confessed it, you'd be put out of the synagogue. So here's what they did. They went underground. They privatized their faith because publicly proclaiming Jesus was too costly. See, that's what Jesus tells us in chapter 12 and why that word glory is used so many times. You know why? Jesus says to the Father in verse 23, he says, my hour has come. It is the hour that the Son of Man would be glorified. You know what he's talking about? It's time for me to go to the cross. It's time for me to suffer. It's time for me to be crucified. But yet Jesus uses the word glorify to describe it because he's teaching us what loving the glory of God is all about. It isn't always smooth sailing. It's not that there aren't any risks. It's not that it won't cost you anything. And it won't be that you never suffer. But only you can choose to do that when you love it. And Jesus says, I love the glory of God. And therefore, I look at the cross as its greatest expression. See, These people had lost their vision of the glory of God. They have lost the ability to see how weighty and valuable and precious Jesus really is. And so instead, they belittle his glory and they let his infinite value be belittled because they value the rings and the inner rings of man, hear me, more. So that's the one side of the coin of glory lovers. It's those who love the glory of man. But Jesus says, or the John passage says, that there's another type of glory lover, and that's the ones who love the glory that comes from God. Let me just say right off the bat, when it comes to loving the glory of God, Jesus did the most, and in doing so, he did not love the glory of man. Listen to his own words In John 5, 41 and 44, he says, I do not receive glory from people. I am not interested overall in the approval of man. And then he asked the people in the crowd, how can you believe? How can you? I know why you can't believe in me. Here's why. When you receive the glory that comes from one another, see, they block each other out. They are antithetical. They are like oil and water. You cannot love simultaneously the glory that comes from man and the glory that comes from God at the same time. You cannot. He says, this is why there are some people who do not believe. They never become Christians. Why? Because if they became Christians, it would change everything. And what would everyone say? 
If I don't do this anymore and I don't go there anymore and I don't do that, but I go here and I go there and I, I start doing this, see, what will people say? And all the things I've invested my life in at the time, see, it'll all be gone. And he says, and this is why you do not believe. How can you do it when you receive glory from one another and listen to him and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Jesus is astounded, but it's true. It's a reality. You know why? Because Jesus knew all about the ordering of glory. Church father, Augustine, he knew what the order of glory was all about. And here's what he says. We must give love and praise to the things proportionate to its worth. By this, he means, hear me, we should love most the things that are most lovely, And we should glorify most the things that are most glorious. The evidence of your sin and mine in our affections is that we tend to be disproportionate to the wrong objects. So let me say it to you this way. There's something wrong in your heart and my heart when we prefer lesser objects than we do greater objects. Let me illustrate What do you think about someone who's an alcoholic who prefers one more drink instead of leaving the bar and going home to their own child's birthday party? Instead, they miss it. Why? Because they prefer one more drink. And you'd say, that's awful. But see, they have a disordered glory. What they want and what appears great to the people around them is far more important than the people who are closest to them, including their own children on their birthday. What about the spouse What about the spouse who prefers a weekend adulterous affair rather than to be faithful to their spouse and to their children and their family that they've been with for 15 years? You would say, wow, that is just crazy. Why do people do that? You know why? Because they love the praise and glory and approval that comes from people. They want what they want, and God's opinion has been belittled. John's words, and they love the praise of man, the glory that comes from man, more than, more than the glory that comes from God. Those words are meant to shock us. Because if you know Jesus and you know what he's about and who he is and what he's done, you would say, how could they prefer the inferior glory of man? How could they want that more than the supreme and superior glory of God? How does anyone want it? You know how? It's the same for everyone. Because we have diminished and lost the vision for how great God really is. So if you notice in the text leading up to verses 42 and 43, John quotes Isaiah two times. The first one is to prove and to to explain how it is that the most religious people in Israel missed Jesus for who he is. And so it is a text that Isaiah uses to predict that Israel would never see God's glory and therefore they would be in unbelief. And that's what the vast majority of religious leaders in Jesus' day were. They were unbelievers. Why? Because they couldn't see. The second quote in Isaiah comes from chapter 6. And it comes from the time when Isaiah had a vision of the glory of God in the temple and he saw how God's holiness shook the temple and the glory of the angels crying, holy, holy. And he saw God in all of his glory. Why does he quote those texts? He wants you to see 
how such religious people could miss the most important thing and prefer the glory that comes from men over the glory of God because they cannot see it. They cannot see it. See, the Bible says that their eyes are blind and their hearts are hard. See, when you're in unbelief and you don't know who Jesus is and you don't really see him for who he is and you don't worship him for who he is, it's because you're blind and you can't see that you are preferring the lesser for the greater, the lesser instead of the greater. So Isaiah says this. See, the Israelites in Isaiah's day are the exact same as the Jewish people in Jesus' day. They saw the signs. Isaiah saw the glory in the temple. They've seen the signs. Signs are manifestation of God's glory. They've seen Jesus heal things. They know all the things. They can see it, but they can't see it. They're blind to it. Their hearts are hard to it. And therefore they don't believe. What John's really saying is the only cure for excessively loving the glory of man, the approval of man, is excessively loving the glory of God in its place. Only then can you reorder the glories in your life. Twice, once in John's epistle, 1 John And also in the beginning, in the prologue of John's gospel, does he make this quote. No one has seen the glory of God at any time. You can't see God's glory and live, but he follows it up with statements like Jesus is the glory of God. In fact, Jesus himself says, if you have seen the Father, you have seen me. You know what Isaiah's quotes are for? He's telling you this. See, when Isaiah saw the glory in the temple and he saw it and he was so moved by it, he says, listen, that's who Jesus is. Jesus is the glory of God. If you have eyes to see and hearts to believe. My wife and I, in the last number of years, have liked to go, we like to go to the U.S. Open in Flushing Meadows. We're tennis fans. And we go there. And one of the things that's really cool when you sit in the stadium, I think it's like 25, 7,000 people in there. Um, they have, and it's true of a lot of sporting events, they have the Jumbotron. Have you ever seen them? The jumbo it's this huge thing, you know, where everybody can see it. And then there'll be a break in the action. The tennis players are resting on the side, switching sides and all that kind of stuff. And, and all of a sudden, you'll see the, the cameras spanning the audience. And there'll be people who are sitting there calmly, and they're just enjoying a conversation. They're waiting for this, the, the, the uh, play to resume. And all of a sudden, someone goes like this and goes like this. And they look up and their face is on the jumbotron. And they lose it. Oh, they start doing crazy antics. I mean, I've seen people start jumping around and dancing. And then I've seen couples look at each other and just kiss each other out of the blue. I mean, why? Because this is their moments of fame. This is their few seconds of glory, right? When the camera person, they know he's focusing on them. Wow. This is their time for glory, isn't it? You say, oh, yeah, that's crazy people on the Jumbotron. Why do they do that kind of stuff? You know what? You and I hold Jumbotrons, miniature versions, pocket-sized ones in our purses, in our po- their phones, have you ever seen someone, oh, let's take a picture. I mean, they're dropping everything they do, and they're all grabbing it around. You're going to take a selfie. I have seen people in public start posing. I mean, literally, like, you know, and, do, and fixing their hair for a two-second photo. We love glory, don't we? We love it. 
Because the jumbotron is our, self, our, our way to say this. It's about me. It's about the glory of what people think of me. I'm on the screen. I didn't get a chance to prepare. Think of it this way. Imagine this. Imagine in the World Series, the games are going on, the two best teams, the stadium is crowded, and there's a little 10-year-old boy who runs out back and forth and gets the bats and picks them up and brings them back. And that little boy thinks that the game is all about him. And that when he goes to get the bat and people cheer, oh, this is why the game exists. They love the bat boy. They love it. And so he's so enamored with himself. And then sometimes he sees himself on the screen and they're showing him and picking up the bats. And he doesn't realize that there's a game going on. There's the World Series game going on. And millions of people are watching. And it isn't about the bat boy. Isaiah had a vision. When he saw the glory of God and how great he was, here's his response. Woe is me. Those are words of judgment. I deserve to be judged and cursed. Woe is me, for I am undone. The Hebrew word means to disintegrate. I see God's glory and I am falling apart. I am being dismantled because of my sin. Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of people with unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the glory of the Lord of hosts. What does it mean to love the glory that comes from God? You know what it means? It means to see that you are the bat boy and God is why the game exists. And you're okay with it. That's what it means to love the glory of God Because when you see the glory of God, it shrinks everyone. Everyone in your life and all the inner rings, it shrinks them, including yourself. It shrinks you down to your true size. You know what loving the glory of God is? It is saying, God, you're big and I am small and I wouldn't have it any other way. Is that you? Let's pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around. Sometime this week, think back on the last few days and be honest with yourself and evaluate how many decisions have you made for the glory of man? Oh, you were going to do this, but you couldn't because so-and-so wouldn't like it. And you would have said this, but you're afraid of what they'd say. Afraid. Some of you are here this morning, and you've come for a while, and you still haven't become a Christian. You're afraid to walk down the aisle. You're afraid to make the commitment. You're afraid to say everything I believed up until this time is wrong. And there are some of you who continue to hold out and hold on Because you prefer the glory of man more than the glory of God. And perhaps the very reason why the Lord Jesus has brought you here this morning is to confront you with that very reality that you have become so accustomed to. It's become so 
habitual in your life that it's more of an instinct than a choice almost. It's what you measure everything by at your job, at school, your relationships, in your home. If you're a teenager, it's what marks every aspect of your choices and decisions that you make. From the time you get up in the morning, what you're going to wear, what you pull out of the closet, the decisions you make, what you're going to do, it's all about loving the wrong glory. With every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around, would there be some here to say, Pastor Walker, this morning, listen, I need to give my life to Jesus. I know he died and rose again for my salvation. But I'm afraid. I've been afraid. I don't want to take the risk. I won't be an insider. I'll be an outsider. I'm not sure I can handle it. Can I tell you this? Jesus became the biggest outsider for you. In fact, Hebrews says he was crucified outside the walls. He chose to be an outsider so that you could be an insider on the greatest inner ring of all, and that is the ring of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Would you say, Pastor Walker, I need to give my life to Jesus. I need to overcome the fear of man and the glory of man, and I, need, I know it's the glory of God, and I want to give him the glory he deserves today. I need to be saved. Pray for me. With no one looking, would you just slip your hand and put it up for a few moments until I see it, and I'll pray for you in a moment, and then put it down. Anyone? Thank you. Thank you, ma'am. Anyone else? Balcony, main floor. I need to love the glory of God more than the glory of man. Thank you. Anyone else? Anyone else? Perhaps you're a believer. Thank you. Perhaps you're a believer here this morning. You're a child of God, and you know You've seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus, as Corinthians says, but you don't prefer it like you should. It is a battle, isn't it? It's not easy to love them proportionately, to love everything in your life less than God who is infinitely valuable and worthy. And you'd say, Pastor Walker, as a believer this morning, there are some definite areas of my life, definite areas of my life where I need a reordered glory love, a reordered one, please pray for me. Would you slip your hand up also and I'll pray for you in a moment. Thank you. Anyone else? Thank you. Anyone else? I need to reorder my glory love as a believer. Thank you. Anyone else? Father, We want to ascribe all glory and honor and praise to the Lamb of God who sits on the throne. All glory belongs to you. Father, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess one day that Jesus is God. He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Oh, Jesus, that we would do it now, that we would bow the knee now before we, it's eternally too late, Oh God, I pray for those who raise their hand, both as those who are unsaved and those who are saved. I pray for those who have yet given their life to you. They haven't committed their lives. They haven't come to you for forgiveness and salvation because the risk is too high and they still cling to their inner circles, their inner rings. God help them to have humility, to seek the glory that comes from you. And for those who are Christians today who raise their hand, indicating there are some definite areas of their lives that need reordered, I pray that you would do by your grace, through your spirit and word, what only you can, 
Father, that you might get the glory that you alone deserved. And we'll praise you for all that you're pleased to accomplish in Jesus' matchless name. Amen.